Welcome, everyone, to another episode of HR and Payroll 2.0. I'm Pete Tiliakis, and as always, I'm joined by the legendary Julie Fernandez. Welcome, Julie. Thanks. Good to see you again, and I'm excited that you brought a friend today. Yes, yes. We are very happy, or very, very lucky, I should say, and happy uh, to have a special guest today for this episode. Uh, he is the founder of Bento HR, the host and creator of Thinking Inside the Box uh, podcast, a show that features uh, thought leaders uh, talking about the complex issues related to work and culture in the workplace, uh, a longtime practitioner, a thought leader, uh, an expert in human capital management space just all around. So please welcome uh, Matt Burns. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome, Matt. Uh, so for those that don't know you, I know that, that probably didn't even scratch the surface of your world, but tell us a little bit about what you do uh, and, 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 and how uh, we could connect with you as well. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. So I spent 20 years in the corporate world. 15 of those were in HR. The last five as an HR executive, did a lot of work with digital transformations, M&A work, corporate restructurings. Then went out on my own, launched my own digital transformation consultancy, Bento HR. And along the way, found time for a podcast and a virtual reality conference and about five yeah. other things I, I can't talk about in the, <laughs> uh, the podcast today. But um, folks want to get a hold of me, you can find me at Matt in VR on LinkedIn. I basically live on that platform and yes. uh, looking forward to today's chat. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. You know, it's interesting when you say 20 years, I know I've been 30 years, Julie, I'm sure you've been probably 30 as well. It's like, uh, I always think like when you look at those time frames, we're all going to be in therapy together, the same therapy. So uh, <laughs> I thought this was our therapy, Pete. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this, could, this could. Yeah, yeah. So Matt, as you're probably uh, familiar, uh, um, you know, with the show, we talk about news up front, we kind of dig into what's going on in the marketplace. And then we jump into a um, topic of the week. And the topic of the week is actually something selfish. I went on a trip recently, and I want to talk about something that I, that I saw there that has really made me spend a lot of time thinking about um, some of the troublesome things that HR is still battling with that it turns out they've been battling for over 100 years. So uh, that really got me thinking a lot. And so I want to, I want to talk about that at the end here, but want to jump into some marketplace news and really happy to have both of your perspectives today. Yeah, um, hey Pete, I think you have yeah. quite a list. So why don't you why don't you I just do. dive in and rattle I do. it off? Yeah. So a real quick, you know, last week or last episode, we talked about uh, ChatGPT, generative AI, large language models, and the whole you know sort of craze that's happened around that, the buzz. Um, and we did a whole episode on that. So if you haven't checked that out, we'd love for you to love for you to do so. But what I thought was pretty interesting was uh, you know one of my peers, Madeline Lerano, who I respect greatly uh, over at Aptitude Research. I tweeted that there were, uh, in the last few weeks since our podcast, right, there have been, I think, six major announcements, more, you know, half dozen HR tech vendors in the space that have launched solutions that leverage chat GPT. Uh, and those range, you know, from, from, you know, various different, a lot of talent, to be honest with you, things like uh, organizations like Beamery, uh, SeekOut, Phenom, Eightfold have all put out some, some unique things. Uh, and Ian Y, right? Ernst & Young has put out something in the payroll world, which is near and dear to my heart. I know yours too, Julie, uh, that really leverages uh, the chat GPT capability uh, in concert with the Microsoft Azure OpenAI um, uh, enterprise, I guess you could say, solution, which, of course, Ian Y, I believe, has built their platform, their global payroll platform on. So the, the chatbot is really going to be uh, leveraged to enhance the employee satisfaction and first contact resolution as first use cases. But I think what you're seeing is that this stuff is making its way very quickly into the HCM space and the end user is already getting, uh, getting to get their hands on it. So exciting stuff and uh, more to come, I'm sure. 
Yeah, and I know we'll have many more, many more conversations about some of these news flashes because it's always, you know, starts on the provider side with a lot of things being announced, and then, and then the question is, does it really make its way to the practitioners and to the clients, or or does it remain kind of in that that vaporware, that cloud, nebulous cloud stage? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, look, I think that all of these things, it's early stages, right? We talked about that on the podcast. There, there's a long way to go, but these are the first steps, right? Getting it, getting it integrated into to um, interactions for things like, uh, you know, simple questions, right? That's the beauty of large language models. It can take massive sets of data. Uh, you know, I think back, I think we talked about this on the podcast last time, you know, we're, when, when I was in consulting, right at Deloitte, we had so much information we had access to, uh, and much of it was probably on someone's laptop somewhere from some project, but finding all that and getting right down to that, that thing you needed um, was really hard, right? In, in the old knowledge base ways. And now with these, uh, advanced AI, I think it's going to be re- just really impressive how quickly employees are going to get to answers and get on their way and become much more productive. So I'm yeah, excited. Hey, so let's stay on the roll. You mentioned EY. I think there's yes. a little bit more to know there. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you probably heard they were uh, of the big four. I believe they were the only one that were looking to bifurcate, right? And split out their consulting from uh, audit business. And that there's a lot of reasons why they would want to do that. I get it. Um, but it turns out it's they're, they've halted that. And I think the U.S. side of the business has, has put a crunch on that in terms of voting. Um, but I understand they spent over $100 million pursuing that. Um, and there's still money to be spent, I believe, budgeted for them to now go and sort of re, uh, you know, re, reorganize around this to, to address some challenges that they've been having. They've had a, a kind of a bumpy road over the last few years with some compliance issues in different places. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens um, with that. And, and I wonder if this will deter others from maybe maybe taking the same approach. We'll see. Well, well far, one, far yeah. be it for me to throw yeah, in yeah. here, but, you know, Please. naming a project Project Everest yeah. from a change <laughs> management perspective. I mean, I mean, the jokes just write themselves. That's a great um, point. That's a great point. I think it's it's an interesting concept. I mean, obviously, the compliance issues facing EY, among others, when you look at their accounting business compared to their consulting business, I think it raises very real ethical questions. When companies are so big in the left hands, not talking to the right hand, what obligation do they have to their clients, to governments, to broader society? This is something I'll be watching in the coming weeks because I think it's going to affect all of us coming downstream. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point. Branding is everything, right? You're, you're absolutely right. It does kind of send a connotation of like uh, a unclimbable mountain, right? Um, so yeah, we'll see. Uh, okay. The next one is, and this is no surprise. They've been talking about doing this for a while. And I think that uh, of all the organizations out there, this might be one of the best to, to, to do it. Uh, Cornerstone has launched their opportunity marketplace. Um, they've, they've described it as quote, the industry's first holistic career growth mobility and talent marketplace. Um, I, you know, and I think it's, uh, I think it's great, right? It's, it's leveraging AI to unify skills, uh, bring people in job uh, role data across the, the you know, the, their talent solutions, which as you know, go into things like performance management, learning, recruiting, uh, all the areas of, of, of talent, uh, and certainly help employees, you know, find projects and learning paths and mentorships and opportunities that they might otherwise not have surfaced to them based on data and information. So uh, I think this is a really cool thing. I know everyone's really building out their skills marketplaces and um, looking to boost this stuff. And and, and I just love it. So what, what do you think, Matt? I know this is probably an area you, you spend some time in. Well, I think any opportunity to democratize access to tools is, is key. 
I think, you know, we can talk about this in the context of many technologies, but most practitioners I speak with are just absolutely confused with what's available on the market. It seems like every day something new is entering in, pr promising to save all the world's problems and make everything better. And the ability to have an aggregator like Cornerstone bring some of these things to their client group, I think, is a is a win for that group. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I still think they're the king when it comes to uh, learning, for sure. And, and and the other areas that they have integrated with that are, are very robust. I've spent a lot of time with Cornerstone over the years myself. Uh, used to be uh, involved much more from my HCM technology research days. And uh, I've had a lot of conversations with their customers. It's really interesting how much they, they do enjoy that, that platform. So, you know, adding more modules all the time. You know what strikes me about this, Pete, is that we're talking about some, they're they're pulling this together to to connect employees to projects more from the employee's yeah. perspective. It feels like than other tools and organizations that are approaching it. Um, you know, really less from the marketplace perspective and more from a, a performance and skills internal skills and talent conversation. Um, yeah. So it's like an outside. It feels outside in to me, right? It's just a flipped lens, and I yeah. think that that brings a lot of opportunity with it. It does. Yeah, I, I would agree. I, I think this is uh, this is the experience platform age that we're kind of living in. And you're right. I think the theme that you see in a lot of these solutions now is the empowerment of the employee to own their data and own their path. So 100% agree with that. Okay, uh, a couple more here. We had uh, Globalization Partners launched uh, GP Meridian Suite. Um, technically, I would argue that there's not a lot here that's new. This is more of a rebundling of their services and a, and a, and a branding of their of their product. I'm going to have a, a deep dive with them here. I believe it's next week or the week after, and we'll get more clarity on this. But it really does bundle their their services and tech together and give you uh, options in order to to solve your global workforce uh, challenges. And they've got a number of different things planned uh, that are coming on the way. So things like salary benchmarking talent intelligence tools, uh, fintech-enabled payments, right? That, that's becoming incredibly um, standard now. It almost feels like in most payroll solutions. And of course, uh, you know, more, more solutions to support various areas of HR. So um, Global EOR is, is steaming right on ahead and they're all getting, getting more mature, hopefully. Uh, and many of the bigger ones like GP are starting to really sharpen their, their offerings and technology. So uh, good to see. Yeah, great segue into the next in the yes, next one in this right. case, right? Yeah, one of the other things I think you're seeing across the global EOR space, probably in a lot of these um, younger uh, emerging firms, as is in HR, uh, is you're seeing a lot of the leadership teams start to start to wash out and change over from the original founding teams, uh, and that's very normal, right? As firm, you know, the, the 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 executives that take you to one level of growth aren't always the executives that take you to the next level of growth. Um, but in this case, uh, Ben Wright, the founder and CEO, is going to move off to the chairman of the board role, and he has brought in a very um, tech-savvy uh, industry veteran, Frank Calderoni, as the new CEO. So congratulations, congratulations to both. Um, and yeah, he's going to bring a very, I, I think, a very um, uh, tech-forward, uh, you know, look at, at what they're doing. And I would say, um, you know, th there's probably some potential for IPO here. I think there's been a lot of um, uh, opining that there could be several of these firms, these bigger ones, right? The GPs, the velocities, uh, you know, maybe even a deal and some other ones that are looking to potentially go IPO at some point. So, so we'll see what happens, right? There's, there's a lot going on in this space. It's still incredibly crowded, um, and, and incredibly, um, 
uh, hyper growth oriented, to be honest, at this point. So wouldn't it be the first HR space where we have proliferation followed by consolidation? I think you're going to see that for sure. Yeah. The the pre IPO thing will probably happen, right? You'll get some people taken out before that or firms get taken out. Not to mention, I've heard there's some really lofty revenue goals by some of these, these firms. And in order to make those, they're going to have to buy something. I don't see how they can do it otherwise. Um, and the other thing is too, as you know, Julie, Look, the ge- geographic capability is hard to develop over time. To have yeah. global capability takes time and investment. I, um, I was going to say, stretch and thin. If your aim yes. is to be global and cover the world, you're just not going to get there as easily as you might think. Exactly. Um, yeah, and I think that's what stretch. the the uh, consolidation would, you know, an acquisition would certainly accelerate that um, and and tap them into you know new areas of uh, of capability that they might not be able to 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 reach. So. Yeah, so good stuff. So congratulations to those guys. Um, maybe on some uh, maybe bad news, I guess you could say another ransomware attack. Uh, I hate to see this. It really, it really does turn my stomach. I, I you know, it, it, it's an evil in the world. I wish we could get rid of for all of us, consumers and and businesses. But um, yeah, so this time SD Works uh, has been hit. Very sounds very similar to the UKG challenges. Um, what a year or more ago now, and so. This is still kind of unfolding, but it sounds like they're investigating this a little bit further, and and they're saying that uh, they actually don't believe it was a ransomware attack. So I think we'll we'll find out what, where 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 the where the uh, information the truth lies, I guess, at some point in their investigation. But my understanding was it was an impact only to their UK and Ireland footprint. Uh, the rest of the Europe was unaffected. But I hate to see this, and I hope they get through this soon, and hopefully customers, uh, you know, and employees weren't weren't too infected by it. Uh, yep, at this every, point. So everyone's knocking on wood right now. Cause you never know where it will hit next. Yeah. It's unfortunate. I, I, I don't want to see it for anyone. It's it's no one deserves that. And um, in this space that that's why I think, uh, you know, it's, it's important to, I think a lot of f- firms when they're buying solutions might, might overlook some of that security element. And I think that's an area where you should look for your vendor to demonstrate, to dem- differentiate and demonstrate their expertise um, th- these guys have a mammoth, mammoth task to, uh, to, to, to hold this data safe. Uh, and most of them do a fantastic job at it. And it's unfortunate that occasionally things slip through, but it is the world we live in now. Okay. Um, one last, yeah, one last one before we go on and, and, and Matt, I'd love to get your POV on this. I know you're, you're an expert, um, in, in this product area, but, uh, Ceridian has announced that Dayforce wallet has passed 1 billion in earned wage access transaction, which is remarkable. Awesome. Um, I've been involved with the Dayforce wallet. I remember being in the room when it was mostly publicly announced, I guess, uh, at, 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 um, at uh, the Ceridian annual client event uh, several years ago. And I remember the recoil in the room from the group of, of, of leaders that were in there, the, the practitioners. I was one of them like, wait a minute, hold on. We can't just be firing off money all over the place without, you know, without proper controls, um, <laughs> you know, and, but, but. This is fundamentally part of payroll now, right? The earned wage access is uh, a tremendous flexibility enabler. It's an it's a massive. From my research, it's almost arbitrary to payroll. It's almost helpful to payroll. And at the end of the day, it it it, it impacts so much more on the talent side: retention, uh, recruiting, uh, referrals, you name it, engagement. So many things go up on the other side of of the spectrum that I think it's it it really should be looked at more as as a talent enabler uh, and, and an engagement driver than, than a payroll solution, but it does need to be fundamentally um, native. It, it just needs to be standard to what you're doing. So kudos to uh, Dayforce Wallet for, for innovating and leading in that area. 
Um, Matt, any, any thoughts on this as well? So many thoughts. I mean, yeah. back to my old days of CHRO in retail, if I had a tool like this at my disposal to help oh. a workforce that is living paycheck to paycheck, and let's be honest, in 2023, last I checked, like 60% of United States adults are living paycheck to paycheck. It's no yeah. longer the domain of retail and hospitality and manufacturing. It's now across the board with inflationary pressures, among other things. The opportunity to give people access to earned wages which I think is key. This is not an advance. It's earned wage access. And I think about, as I've reflected upon the solution itself, this might be filed under historical ways of doing business that when we look back on them may not make sense. Since the dawn of payroll, the majority of employees have essentially extended interest-free loans to their organizations. We yes. Work. We get paid every two weeks or every four weeks, and the organization is collecting that money and then in some cases investing it or directing it to generate additional revenue and then paying employees on a payroll cycle. Well, with Wallet, people have access to earn wages in real time. I think it's a game changer for the industry, and I couldn't agree with you more, Pete. I see this much more as a talent enabling solution as opposed to a payroll solution. The reason it's in payroll, though, is it's enabled by continuous calculations of pay and time, which yep. allows the solution to be able to ensure that... There's no need to do any reconciliation for the payroll manager. There's no overhead for the company or the employee, but simply they're just advancing interest to the employee based on controls put in place by the organization. I, I love this solution. I talk about it all the time on my podcast. I, I couldn't be more excited about the potential of it. I think you're going to see more and more of these solutions enter into the market. Yeah, agreed. And I think Ceridian's definitely been a leader in this space. I mean, the continuous calculation capability, um, Dayforce Wallet, they've really been very, very forward in this. And so, you know, 1 billion in transactions uh, is impressive. And so kudos to them. And I, I love uh, I love that. I love seeing what they're doing there. So Pete, I think um, there's, yeah. a, there's another part of the story there, too. And that is, while we talk about it a lot domestically, you know, Ceridian, part of getting to that billion has been expanding Wallet and putting it not only in the U.S. and Canada, but in the UK and ANZ and, you know, kind of we're all watching to see what's next, right? So oh, yeah. doing that and doing that globally are two different things. Even some of the, you know, some of the really hefty names in the space that that are um, tools or conduits to get to there um, may not have their act together globally. And so there's a little bit of a distinction that buyers should know about their, um, when they're thinking about trying to put that into their organization. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when I was at Alight, I wrote a, I wrote an article about the fact that I think that, that, you know, there is a lot of, there are still a lot of payroll practitioners and leaders who do not think this is a good idea. And I understand, I totally get it. And I think some of it is generational and some of it is that control mindset. That's what payroll's job is, compliance and control, right? Um, risk management, if you will. And I, and I totally understand that. But what I think I'd love for, for more payroll managers to understand, in, in my opinion, is and I think it's a fact. It's it's earned wage access is really a lever for the payroll organization to be able to solve problems for the workforce. And I think that is certainly financial wellness. But think about things like, I mean, if you've ever managed a, a footprint in California, right? Same day payments when you terminate someone is it's a nightmare, especially when you're on the other side of the country. Uh, you know, it's when you're when you're looking at at moments where, so for example, I, I remember uh, uh, researching one use case where a major retailer, a major grocer had uh, been hit by the Texas snowstorms a couple of years ago, the ice storms or whatever it was, couldn't get their pay or whatever to the employees. They should be on direct deposit, but that's a different story. Uh, and they used their earned wage access provider to get money to those people instantly. And I thought those use cases are a lifesaver to the payroll practitioner who's out there trying to make it happen and, and, and make magic happen every week. So um, yeah, 
you, you got to look at it for all the benefits that it brings and not not just you know kind of attack it from the controllership perspective because it is counterintuitive if if you want to be honest at, at first so well well and Pete think about for payroll managers how many times they're approving off cycle pay runs oh, cash yeah. advances like I, I get hives thinking about the amount of times I had to sign off on a yep. pay advance to an employee that was going through a difficult time and frankly did we really need to understand the details of providing you know paid access to people in some cases maybe but in other cases it's a very personal issue where an employee has to go to a payroll manager explain why they need advances on their pay to earned wages this provides a tool for payroll managers to do more valuable work and to essentially separate themselves from an administrative process that most of them that I talk to don't like doing anyway. So exactly. if, we want, if we want to invest our time in more value-added activities, we have to stop doing some things. This to me is a no-brainer. Yeah, I love it. And that you, you make a, a great point. I actually mentioned this in my article that it's a, it's it's almost like a, a, a dignity thing, right? Like the ability for employees to solve financial wellness challenges without having to be, you're right, put their whole life on display and, and, and go and grovel for money. It's it's a much more dignified way for them to solve those challenges. So yeah, I, I love it, man. It's the, the out-of-the-box thinking, or in your case, the in-the-box thinking <laughs> that we need to have um, to, to move HR and workforce forward. Okay. Uh, any more, anything else you guys want to add on those topics before we jump into our uh, fun topic of the week? No, like what no? a laundry list. This is, this is I the know. power of having an analyst in your back pocket podcast, right? Yes. Yes. Thank you. So, so look, selfishly, this, this episode is a little bit about my, uh, what's been keeping me up at night. And I know that's a cliche thing, but ever since my trip to Asheville, I don't know if you've been to Asheville, North Carolina, Julie, have you, have you been? Only for work. Only for work. Okay. It's a beautiful town. Matt, I think we, we talked. You said you hadn't been either yet, right? On the list. Yeah. Okay. Go, you should go. It's a, it's a great place. Art, craft breweries, amazing food. Just just a beautiful town. It's a, it's, a, it's a river town. It's a mountain town. I mean, it has everything you'd want for a great weekend. So my wife and I went. We had never been. We lived three hours away. We made the trip. Uh, and we were privileged to actually tour the, the Biltmore Mansion. If you're, or the Biltmore House, is it called? And I, it, it is not a house. It is a massive 175 square foot, 250 room mansion, uh, the largest private home in the United States of America, right? To me, uh, I'd say that's the closest thing we have to a royal palace here in America, if, if, uh, if I may. And so what's amazing about this is, right, you're walking around, you're looking at this. I mean, it is, it is I mean, think about the, the Vanderbilts at the time, the family that built this. I mean, they had, I believe they were the wealthiest family in, in America, it, potentially, if not maybe one of the wealthiest in the world. Um, and they had an amazing vision for for building this. The 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 uh, the, the family member that did, um, and and it's it's actually a incredibly um, excessive place, right? I mean, let's let's be honest. It's one hundred seventy five thousand square feet is ridiculous, right? And it was actually built by one of the uh, the Vanderbilts who uh, was single at the time. That was kind of the joke they tell you on the tour, like yeah, you know, single guy living in this huge house. Um, but he had this vision, right, for having this beautiful home, and it's it's amazing. It has everything you can imagine. And they, one of the things they talked about is like all the innovation that was inside of it, um, things that were just not available to regular people uh, at the time. And one of the things that's really interesting to me was fascinating to me was I had the opportunity to go into an area. I think it was actually kind of in the basement area, um, and they had this exhibit for the workforce. Well, and actually. I gravitated down there and started reading it. And, I, and I'm going to share some of my photos from, uh, from the exhibit. But they had two elements of, of the workforce exhibit that, that really just drew me in. One was around innovation and one was around the challenges that they were facing. And surprisingly, despite the fact that they had 
not only innovation in the home for comforts, they had innovation at their hands and at their disposable to, excuse me, disposal to build and construct the home, right? So they had uh, capabilities and tools that other construction projects had not had. So by all means, they were a very innovative workplace, right? Let's, let's just level set there. Uh, but what's interesting, there were three things that came out to me that I was shocked that, that they were dealing with as, as, as a workforce and as a project that we are all still dealing with today. And keep in mind that this, this project took, uh, I think, six years, five, six years, uh, completed at the end of 1895. So we're talking 128 years later. We're looking at the exact same issues, right? And let me, let me maybe just, just uh, hit those real quick. So the first one was productivity, right? Despite the fact that the first of the kind project required this massive workforce, right? They still had, or excuse me, despite having this, uh, this leading edge technology and innovation that they were able to use at the time, right? Uh, still had a need for this sizable workforce, right? So productivity was a real problem, right? The other issue they had was not enough skilled workers, not enough artisans. There were, there were, there were just not people available in the area that could do what they needed and wanted and aspired to do in this home. And so a lot of what they were doing was going abroad and bringing people back uh, to the job site and, and employing them to be the artisans to make this stuff happen, right? So productivity and skills were a problem. And the third one, surprise, uh, wellness, pay equity, and, and fundamental worker rights, um, were a challenge. So, so I'm sitting here looking at these three things and I'm thinking, this is 2023. We're talking about these same exact issues today. How, how are we 120 years on and HR and the workforce are still in the same space that they were tackling the same problems that they were 128 years ago? And that's where, that's where our discussion begins. I, I, I really want to open this up uh, and I want to figure this out because in full candor, I started to write an article about this and Julie will attest. I got a little, I, I feel as though I held back because I, I didn't publish it because I felt like I was coming off as though I was blaming HR. And while I think there are some self-inflicted ways in which HR has, has prevented some of these things from progressing, I also think that a lot of it has been out of their hands for many reasons. So that's where I want to get you guys to give me your thoughts, right? Let's, let's kind of get this going and talk about what you think. I mean, are you shocked by this? Um, do you think this is HR's fault? I mean, what, what do you think? So Pete, I'm going to start yeah. by saying, you know, <laughs> I may have some time to think about it since looking at your initial, you know, kind of your initial thoughts, which is yes. just a great conversation starter. But I think, um, you know, I think in those days, it might be fair to say that HR wasn't an established function at that time, right? Yes. So, great so point. the first thing that I thought about was, yeah, how you know, like this is a great point to make. How how is it that you know we're still you know 120 later years later thinking about the same stuff? But then I thought, I bet there wasn't you know HR dealing with you know the workforce that was trying to do what was happening in the build and all the construction, and so we weren't a function yet. Um, not a really well-established one. And so, so that, you know, that, that might let us off the hook for a few years. anyways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's a perfect point though. You're, you're right. Right. There wasn't, you know, we didn't have workday and success factors out there helping fuel our, our workforces. We didn't have artificial intelligence and chat yeah, GPT, like, but, but I don't even just, know if we had work. I don't even know if we had HR. Not we, much. Oh, yeah, you know, exactly. That's when business was coming about. We might have had a payroll department somewhere, but you know, was there really HR yeah. function? Probably not. So, like, we had a maybe this was our inspiration 128 yeah. years ago. 
Yeah. So you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You, you meant, yeah, exactly. The, the department of HR and the concept. Yeah, just didn't, I mean, business was just starting to come about and you that's know, a great point. Starting to become a practice and a function of back office didn't exist. Back yeah. Now. Yeah. Matt, what do you think? What, what do you, where are you at on this? This makes me sad. Yes. <laughs> we, we, we haven't evolved and we've regressed. <laughs> we've regressed on all of these. Well, and, and I like at the risk of, getting my hackles up and defending HR. Cause I certainly have my own gripes about the profession and our stubbornness around embracing things like technology and data and innovation. Some of these things really are systemic and fall far outside of their purview. True. I look, I look at organizations and how they're structured today. And if we deal exclusively with publicly traded companies in North America, for which I think the majority of your audience probably falls into that category, board members and C-suite executives have a sole fiduciary responsibility. And that is mm-hmm. to enrich the shareholder. Period, full stop, end of story. (laughs) Talent, diversity, wellness do not come into play unless it achieves that stated outcome. Now, we could argue about whether that's appropriate or not, but the fact is until the incentives are better aligned with more of a talent-centric mandate, we're going to continue to see discrepancies between what we actually think is in the best interest of our employees and organizations and what's actually happening in organizations themselves. So I think I look at... Yes, we can try and address the short term and the downstream symptoms of problems, but I look more upstream and go, what's starting all of this? And I look at the structure of businesses and say, that's a place to look at with a bit more of a fine tooth comb, because this is what we've designed. Is this what we want? Yes. Yeah. No, that's absolutely great point. Great point. And you're right. Like, look, I mean, fundamental human rights were, were really not where they needed to be at the time, right? I mean, human equality was just a problem in America, period. Um, and, I, you know, I think that, let's be honest here, they, these guys were taking on, uh, or and gals maybe, were taking on Mission Impossible in some ways, right? This was never done before. Nothing like this had ever been done. So yeah, I, I think they were they were in a unique situation. And you're right, Julie, not, not a lot of HR and, and not a lot of information to be able to make good decisions. And, and hell, how do you get people how do you get people in 1895 to come, to come come work for something? How do you even let them know it's happening? Right. I don't, I don't know. Um, But yeah, just fascinating stuff here. I still feel like I, I maybe have rosier glasses on in this space than, you know, than my initial reaction, you know, and I don't think it's defensiveness. I think there's a lot of things that feel like groundhog day, right. Over the last hundred plus years. But I also think that we have to, um, we have to kind of look at it as, you know, crawl, walk, run. Yeah. Um, we've had iterations and iterations. And one of the, one of the things that I feel like HR um, has progressed in, and yet we just keep reliving it over and over again is with each new technical wave of technical revolution, right? Yeah. Um, we find ourselves chasing productivity, you know, one of your key points through, you know, those advancements. And so, so maybe we feel still feel like we're, you know, the, like now chat GPT, right? Or other automations, like, will they get us where we're trying to be? And yet I, I can't help but think that we've gone through four, five, six iteration, generations of really formative and transformative technology changes. So, you know, getting to the off, getting a, a technology at all, right. And a computer was, had to be birthed before we could get to office suites and make things usable before we get to, you know, ERP type systems and big hairy stuff before we get to SAS. Right. And, and so I feel like, yeah, we're still, we're still chasing the productivity, but we really have evolved from having nothing. Oh Yeah. <laughs> 
Oh yeah. It's it's just, we're just keep chasing the next shiny, shiny thing. And we have to, to keep up with the times. Right. Yeah. Agreed. Do do you, you're, you're on the front lines, right? Do do you feel, do you feel like, cause I, I have said that I don't know and I don't have research entirely to prove this, but anecdotally from all of my work, that I don't know that organizations are adopting the technology available fast enough. Do you think that's a true statement for the most part, or do you think people are trying? I think that's a challenge, and I think we're trying. And part of it is, of course, just funding, and um, you know, the business will always come first. Some of the back office stuff, so that's always been a challenge. But I also feel like you know, this last um, the the iteration before automation, the SaaS iteration, um, was groundbreaking in that people could leapfrog technology in ways that they hadn't, you know, like if you'd never gotten anywhere with an HR platform and HR system, you didn't have the baggage of big, heavy investments or the luxury of having started to automate things. In many cases, you were an advantage, right? Yeah. So you could jump forward. So I feel like that kind of erased or blurred the lines on, you know, maybe a hundred of those 125 years, um, where if you, if you hadn't made any progress or gotten anywhere, you could leapfrog into something that was, you know, maybe you were in a better situation than anyone else um, yeah, in yeah. that spot. And so that to me was, you know, from a practitioner perspective, just really, um, really awesome um, way to get caught up or to feel like you're getting caught up. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think, and maybe Matt, this is probably for you, maybe in your wheelhouse, but like, I think a, 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 a sub uh, driver of productivity is the challenge with the engagement, right? I think that's what we're seeing today because the technology is there. I think what you're seeing today, right? I, I saw this morning, right? So for example, uh, ADP uh, research put out something recently. I want to say it was in the beginning of the year about how productivity is down uh, for three straight quarters for the first time since the eighties, right? And t- today I saw, or yesterday it was UKG put out something. They analyzed the shift uptake across their, you know, massive, uh, scheduling solutions. Um, the fact that those are down shift acceptance is actually down. So that means people are working less, right. Taking on less shifts. Do you think that, I think that's an engagement issue, right? I I think there's a, there's a element of productivity that is being lost because of a lack of engagement and a lack of motivation to engage with what they're doing and be loyal. And, 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 and it's not that people don't want to do a good job and don't want to work hard. I think there's just not a lot of motivators sometimes in certain workplaces. Well, we're hitting a breaking point in a lot of yeah. places. Like, I think we've evolved, but like we haven't learned anything. I mean, we, we all bore witness to the forced migration of millions of employees to work from home during the pandemic. And call that an opportunity, call it a blessing, call it a curse. But the reality is we were all forced to work from home one day and the day before we were all young. Yeah. <laughs> and the vast majority of organizations that I talked to realized solid financial results during the pandemic, despite the fact that people were not co-located. Except if you ask most organizations today, they can't get people to the offices fast enough. Now, in a time when we're trying to look at things like work-life balance or work-life integration and employees are increasingly asking for more flexibility with which to be more agile with their time so they can get their job done but also live their lives, organizations have now clapped back and said, no, um, it doesn't make sense in spite of the data that points to the opposite. And as an HR practitioner, this gets me particularly upset because for years, and Julie, you know the story, for years I was told as an HR practitioner, well, Matt, your ideas are a moral-based argument. Show us the data. 
And then when we show them the data, they yeah. go, well, ah, the data is not that it's not, it's not relevant. It's not valid. It's doesn't not, it doesn't apply to us here. So it's yeah. like, when is it enough? Like what signals do we need to show organizations to understand that you can only squeeze so much blood from a stone we're putting more requirements on people. And this is not just an employment conversation, but the world has gotten more complex. People are overwhelmed. People are increasingly choosing to opt out of the workplace in different ways. Look at Generation Z. I mean, what yeah. incentive do they have to work 40 hours a week and put 30 years into an employer if they can't afford to buy a house? Like it doesn't, the dream of, you know, that we all grew up in, that we were all sold is no longer a dream that's re- in attainable for a large portion of our population. Yeah. And the workplace is predicated on that system. That system is not working anymore. So I ask myself, if we got to this point, and let's be fair, we've realized incredible achievements over the last several generations that have gotten us to this point. Bravo. As we move forward, the world is changing. We have to look at this differently. And I think this is an opportunity for us to ask bigger questions about what actually makes sense and to use evidence-based approaches, use the data at our disposal to inform decisions as opposed to relying upon what we're most comfortable with. And I think as HR practitioners, we can be as guilty of this as the next. We, we revert back to what got us to this point. And I would just encourage people to ask themselves, what can we do that's different that makes sense against the current landscape. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, I think that's the difference between, and I'm a big Simon Sinek fan, so I'm going to, I'll say this all the time. I think that's the difference between a fixed mindset and, an, and, and, a, and a very forward, uh, agile mindset, right? A growth mindset. And that, you're right, listening to the data and not assuming that, oh, well, you know, just ignoring it, right? It, it, it's it's telling you something, you should do something. Uh, and, and, you know, I think we were talking about this offline, Matt, but like I, I've worked uh, for a fortune, a very famous fortune 500 organization in my day. And one of the things they were incredibly known for is just the amazing brand and customer experience that they have. Everybody knows I'm talking about Disney, but uh, one of the things that I think that they uh, are, are are incredibly good at as well is, is being very forward in, in helping and, and, and lifting up their employees. But they're the type of organization, like many, if you put something in front of them that is back office, it's less likely to get any attention as opposed to something that is going to face their customer and move the needle on customer and revenue, right? And I think a lot of firms fall into that and they, and they, and they put off those investments in the back office. And it's not that they're not investing in their people. They're just not investing, I think, in the infrastructure to make them more productive, to make them more insightful and have a better experience and all that in favor of what's customer facing, but, but the conundrum or, or the, or the, the crazy cycle there, egg before the uh, uh, chicken, I guess, is in order to get that great customer experience, you obviously, you need that great employee experience. You need a productive, engaged employees. And there's plenty of data that shows those things correlate. One leads to the other employee experience start or customer experience starts with your employee experience. And I think that it's counterintuitive sometimes for these big companies to go, oh, how am I going to throw down all this money on this cost center when I can go put it over here and I can get revenue out of my customer or I can change my customer's experience for the better? And I think that's a trap um, that some maybe maybe fall into uh, a it's little a, bit. It's a, it's a huge trap and it's a trap predicated on demographics that have massively shifted and will continue to shift. So yeah. let's let's be really honest. The employment model for most organizations has been quite exploitative. Employees have been interchangeable and replaceable. So if you found somebody in an organization that wasn't successful or wasn't able to meet the expectations, then you could move on from that individual and you could find other people to fill in that work. 
I'm taking a very broad stroke here. Yeah. This personally, but that <laughs> a lot of organizations definitely have viewed talent in that way. If I can't find this person to work, I'll find somebody else. Yeah. Guess what? The world has shifted. And in most developed economies, the United States and Canada among them, the demographics are shifting such that there are more people leaving the workplace every single day than are joining it. Organizations no longer have the luxury of taking a exploitative view around their talent. They are incentivized now financially in ways they haven't been before to figure this out. And I think for the first time, the incentives are lining up such that we're going to see organizations awaken to the reality that they have to look at these problems differently, which has been something that we've been talking about, Julie and myself and yourself, Pete, for 20 and 30 years We've been arguing for this from a moral perspective. Meanwhile, the economic landscape maybe wasn't in our favor. It's now starting to shift again. And my concern is for organizations that, again, use similar thinking to what we used 20 and 30 and 40 years ago, they're going to wake up one day and realize we can't fill vacancies and we can't automate fast enough. And we don't have the resources in place to ensure operational and business continuity. And That's just simply an avoidable problem when all the numbers seem to point in a different direction than they once did. I get really excited about the organizations that are innovating in this space, that are creating opportunities for employees to learn and grow. And we're not talking about a socialist state here. We're talking about treating people with respect as human beings. And with something that we all would advocate for, I think that's the path forward is creating workplaces that recognize people for the individuals that they are. And those companies can still make a lot of money and enrich their shareholders, but we just simply can't do so at the expense of people. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I feel like the uh, opportunity marketplace from Cornerstone could be, could be helpful here. (laughs) Bringing everybody to, to, uh, to the paths that they're looking to go down, right. And elevating their, their, their desires. So, and, and goals. So I think there's a bit um, yeah, of a built-in challenge. There's a bit of a built-in challenge here too, because yeah. of the speed and the access to information that we have today. You know, this is going to be a topic that everybody is bantering around. But when you think about such a dramatic change in how we in- engage with talent or how we look at the workplace value proposition itself, um, real transformative change oftentimes comes from, you know, 10, a 10% of the population. It, it really doesn't usually come from the, the critical mass, right? And so, you know, the re- since you brought up the Biltmore, the Revolutionary War, just prior to that, I think I read somewhere that 10 to 15% of the population was actively engaged in that. Well, 80, you know, 80% plus were, you know, on the sidelines. And yeah. so here we have, you know, I'm expecting that really meaningful change might come from a similar 10 to 15% that kind of figure it out. In the meantime, there's 80% of, you know, everyone that's that's making noise about this, right? Yeah. And it just makes it harder and harder to um, to see or to identify who is innovating in this space and what will the new model shake out to be. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. And, you know, and, I, and then, you know, just kind of going to the next topic here, right? The skilled worker thing. I think that was a bit of an anomaly here, right? You had uh, this massive one-of-a-kind thing beyond belief uh, of anything that had been done before, uh, beyond, you know, opulent, beyond what, what anything had been <laughs> opulent before in this remote location, right? I think it was just a, a wild mix of, of uh, strange opportunity that created this skills gap. Um, and I think we will figure that out eventually in our world, right? It's going to take a full court press of, I think, government agencies and uh, employers and employees and schools and universities all coming together. And there are nations that are better at this than others. I would, I would point to uh, Israel as a great example of how they're skilling their workers, or at least from what I've read, 
Um, and so I think that skills, the skills situation here in this case was very much an anomaly. Uh, and I think it, I think it will get better. And to Matt's point, I think it's going to take using data and making investments and everyone, I think there's a lot we need to do from an education system perspective to fix this too. But I think this was a bit of an anomaly for this, for this crowd. But, uh, what, what are your, what are your thoughts, Matt, on, on the whole skills element? Um, issue. I, I love this conversation. Yeah. I, you know, I don't come from a traditional career background, educational background. I, like a lot of folks, grew up through the ranks of a, of a corporate setting and acquired experiences that ultimately inform my education, not the other way around. So I have a strong bias in terms of collecting experiential opportunities and applying them in your life. And I think about the opportunities that organizations have to afford their employees, to give them opportunities for stretch assignments, you know, stretch goals, um, opportunities to be exposed to different projects. And I see a wealth of knowledge that's untapped in organizations if you pair the right people to the right kinds of opportunities. And I get really excited about that future. I think, you know, in a lot of ways, our traditional institutions, education among them has gotten us to this point, but no longer makes tons of sense. I mean, there's lots of good science that points to the fact that most adult learners do not learn through recitation and memorization and lectures yes. and PowerPoints. But that seems to be the predominant model still offered by most contemporary and modern, air quotes, universities today. Um, whereas other tools that more deeply embed learning, like experiential um, opportunities, for example, are, are ubiquitous in the corporate setting. So I think I get really excited about this space, actually, because I think organizations here can take the lead on skills training, ultimately in their own best interest, but in the interest as well for their employees. Yeah, agreed. They got, I mean, for their survival, they've got to do this, right? They got to get these people ready to go and be able to handle their strategic goals. And I think that, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about the fact that these artisans were being pulled from, from other countries in a lot of cases. I, you know, I think back, like, I wonder if there was compliance and all that, right? It was a, no global EOR back then, but uh, yeah, no, it's, um, this is a challenge and, and I think we've got to get our workforce, right? GDP is slipping, at least in our country. We've got to get this, the productivity and the skills uh, go hand in hand with making that happen. Um, so last one here, uh, and then we'll get wrapped up, right? Worker rights and wellness. We're still talking about this. And, and I, I, listen, I think this is, I think a lot of this people first stuff is, is lip service by some of these companies because it's been become popular to say that and trendy. Oh, you got, you got to do that, right? You got to seem socially conscious. You got to seem, but it's pretty simple, right? Treat people fairly. Look at people for what they bring to the table, what value and skills they offer, uh, how they contribute to the team and how they can how they can help you achieve your goals and pay them fairly. Like I don't understand and I and I believe it's 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 very systemic and I'm sure there's there's a lot of factors here, but why the heck can't we get this pay equity um and and maybe the, certainly the wellness part of it I think can even be added up up to the two things we just talked to, right? Engagement and just the type of work we're asking people to do and the monotony of some of the things that they're still doing out there. Uh, where technology hasn't been applied to it, or you know, the fact that people just aren't skilled for what the new work work looks like, and this is going to become important with with AI getting getting more proliferated. But but how how is it we can't get paying people fairly? That that just seems like a no brainer to me, right? Like, what is it going to take? You know. Well, I feel like we have a conundrum here, and that is, you know, when you when you try to tackle these issues, you you want to institutionalize things, right? Yeah. And so, so we've addressed things in HR over the course of many years, you know, to create compensation bands and ranges, and to create um, structure, right, that will allow us or guide us in doing that. And anytime we come to a transformative phase like this, we're saying, look, it's not hard. Just just do what's right. And then there's the other side of the house that says, 
Well, but if you're just doing what's right, how do you know if you're doing what's fair? And then, you know, you try to institutionalize things and those two, those, there's a dichotomy between those two things that that really makes it, you know, difficult for HR or for any company to try to figure out, you know, what am I going to do to do what's right and to do what's fair? And how do I measure and balance those things? Um, uh, is, you know, it's maybe harder than it seems because they might not go in the same direction. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's a good point. I hadn't thought about that. Matt, Matt, what do you think? I actually have a lot of optimism on this particular segment. I think the, uh, again, if we look at the incentives, organizations are incentivized to ensure productivity, which the ultimate form of productivity is availability. Yes. And we're entering into a world where we're a knowledge-based economy. And there's a clear scientific links between intrinsic motivation, discretionary effort, and output. And organizations realized this during the pandemic by increasing the amount of services they provided in mental health and access to wellness services. But I think this is where HR can really take, you know, if they hear this podcast and go, oh, that's really a lot of doomsday stuff. What do we do about this? This is an area where HR can actually influence this. And I think it starts with building the business case for wellness in your organization, tying it to traditional metrics like turnover and absenteeism, and making the case at that executive table to say, hey, investments, a dollar here saves us $3 there. And it's an opportunity for us to put a moral wellness conversation into economic wrapping. You know, Pete here, I'm going to out myself for the the world to understand. As a CHRO, I showed up at every board meeting talking about technology, data, and economics. And meanwhile, my Trojan horse was always employee wellness. But I Mm -hmm. knew if I led with that, that I wouldn't get laughed out of the room. So by starting talking about digital transformation and embedding wellness principles into the broader strategy, that's where we were able to move our engagement agenda forward. Meanwhile, the broader organization saw it as a, a lagging effect of technology innovation. So I think this is where HR can be more thoughtful about integrating all the disparate skills that we now have to apply as HR practitioners. We're all part-time psychologists and technologists and data scientists and economists and learning professionals and compensation professionals and so on and so forth. Blending all these things together to make that strong business case for change, I think it's right there for us and we all stand to benefit from it. Yeah, agreed. So Julie, you're, you're, you're again on the front lines. What what uh what's going on with wellness and 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 just pay equity, right? Are there are, are employers really getting into this and 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 trying to build initiatives around? I know wellness for sure, but pay equity. How how do you see firms tackling this? Yeah, certainly. So huge bunches of noise here, and as you know, here in Palmer uh, does a lot in the benefits and absence space, and a lot of the topics of wellness are you know focused on what else can we offer or how should we be addressing. some of the things that employees want most or need most, which are related directly to time or to, you know, health or, or to salary. And, um, but what, what struck me when, when Matt was talking was there's also a people lens to this. And that is, you know, every one of us is a worker in our own right. And a part of trying to, um, to create this value also requires employees, us as employees, individuals to try to actually articulate what is valuable to me? I mean, anybody that you, you're you interacting with who works will say, well, more time off or more pay or more whatever. And so you're looking at a pick list that corporations are trying to offer or employers are trying to offer. As an employee, what do you even value? And do you recognize that, oh, more time off or, you know, um, might mean um, less pay? <laughs> is that yeah. an okay trade-off for you, yeah. right? And yeah. I don't think that we're at the place right now where where individuals really can um, articulate 
what that value proposition is for them. Instead, a lot of times we're responding to programs that are being put forth or benefits that are being put forth or, um, you know, I, I want equal this or equal that. Well, you could argue that, but then can you still argue that you need extra time off, you know, once a month when you aren't feeling so good, right? I mean, like the, there's these things are at odds with each other and everybody values them differently. Uh, so, you know, that that I think is the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. That's a great point. Well, look, uh, I know we're getting kind of long here, but uh, any anything to add before we wrap up uh, this discussion and maybe just talk a little bit about what, where we're going to be next? Anything uh, Anything you guys have additional? I, we, I always say this, but we could go on and on, I think, for sure. Uh, anything else to add? Not for me. I'll defer no? to Matt because yeah. these are special yeah, guests and guest I've, enjoyed, <laughs> I've enjoyed getting to know him a little bit better and hear his perspectives. They're awesome. I'm really excited. I think this is a really great opportunity for all of us, HR professionals, business professionals alike, to look at things differently than we once had. To Julie's earlier point, we have tools that we did not have to our disposal. I think back in my early days of HR, filing paper into filing cabinets and arguing over the benefits of digitizing anything, to now talking about you know generative AI and virtual reality and machine learning. And I think what an incredible opportunity and I would just encourage individuals to keep listening to podcasts like this, keep following people on LinkedIn, collect the knowledge from your community and make more effective change in your organization. So I'm excited about the future. Yeah, I love it. And thank you so much for coming on, man. We really appreciate this. This is this has been a great discussion. I've had fun. I appreciate you guys uh, entertaining my uh, my silly thoughts around <laughs> around this craziness of uh, 128 years of the same HR problems, right? Um, so look, before we wrap up, uh, as always, we want to give a, a, a quick uh, update about where we'll be. So Matt, maybe you could go first. Like what, uh, where can folks, I, I know you talked about some of the ways to connect with you, but what's uh, what's coming up for you on your agenda that we should uh, highlight? Oh, it's post-pandemic for me. I'm on yeah. trains, planes, and automobiles. I'll be in New York City, Atlanta, Boston, Charlotte. Um, just got back from two weeks in uh, Europe, spent uh, some wonderful time at the Lego HQ in Denmark. That was oh, amazing. Cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, like there's just so much great stuff going on and love talking to HR people about anything and anything culture. Find me on LinkedIn, Matt in VR. Otherwise, check me out on the podcast, Thinking Inside the Box. Yes, absolutely. I'm a subscriber. I love it. I think it's a great show. You should all uh, check that out. Julie, what about you? Where are you going to be? What's uh, what's going on for you? My, I've got a bit of travel coming up myself. So I'm going to be in Dallas at the end of the month and then Chicago uh, early in May. And uh, I think, Pete, I'm joining you at the Payroll Congress. Um, yes. In yes. Mid to late May. Uh, we'll be doing some talk sessions there. So I hope to meet some folks there as well. And uh, we have uh, I'm doing some quarterly webinars. So skills and talent intelligence is the topic of a May 23rd webinar that uh, that we're doing with Dave Polachek, who's my uh, my colleague. And um, and so a little bit more on on skills and talent intelligence and actually making that tangible. Yeah. Awesome. Yes. And Dave is a alumni of our show as well. So make sure you check him out at his podcast on uh, analytics. That was a really good one. How about you, Pete? Where are you headed? Yes, me. So next week, I am going to be on with the executives from OneSource Virtual next Wednesday, April 19th. We're doing a webinar discussion on how to maximize your investments in people and data. Uh, through the payroll operation and payroll operating model. So please check that out, especially if you're a Workday user. Uh, that is um, one I, I'd love to have you join me with. Um, and then the week following, I'm going to be at uh, Unleash, the International Festival of HR, as it's called, in Las Vegas. Um, I'm speaking there with uh, my distinguished partner, Steve Goldberg. Uh, we're going to be talking uh, about org agility 
And as you know, it's uh, not to be missed. Steve is, is to me, the, uh, the top HCM expert when it comes to that topic. And uh, he always gives great, um, uh, great presentations on that. And I'm just happy to be a part of it uh, with him. So definitely uh, do that. And if you want to jump on that, that is a private breakout. You have to be invited only. So if you want to be a part of that one, just let me know and I will get you contacted or in connection with the uh, Unleashed team. We'll get you in that uh, breakout. So, and again, make sure you check out uh, Matt. He's got a great show, got great insights. Uh, and we appreciate you coming on, Matt. Thank you so much. It's been a great, great conversation. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. All right. Take care, Julie. Take care, Matt. That's a wrap. 